Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. Welcome to Culture Bites. My name's Dominic Gawley. I'm a consultant with Human Synergistics Australia, and I'm joined on the podcast this week by our Melbourne consultant, Ash Smith. Hey, Ash. Hey, Dom. How you going? Good. Hey, Ash. I was um, in a workshop the other day, and I was sort of, you know, I realized I was, I was recommending different books to people and so on, and, and I see the world through a bit of a circumplex lens, given what we do. And kind of connecting books, uh, you know, and to how they kind of relate to what we do. And it just made me think, you know, I've got a few go-to books that I love. But what are other people's books, you know? Like what if uh, maybe what are the books that you read that you recommend to others? And maybe how do they connect to our world? I'd be fascinated to learn from you. I'm looking for a few recommendations is really what I'm getting to, Ash. Right. Well, you've probably mistaken me for somebody who reads well, I, uh, I, I, I listen I'll, anyway. I'll I'm on Audible. It's all good. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I was a Mad Magazine kid uh, growing up. I wasn't a, wasn't a big reader. But uh, no, look, I, in all seriousness, I'm not a big reader. So the sort of books that I tend to recommend or suggest or have actually taken the effort to read through have been because they've been pretty cool. So whilst I probably don't have a long list of things that I recommend because I'm not a, a big reader, as a bit like you, I'm probably better at listening I love conversations to learn, but you've got a couple of books that keep coming up for me, particularly in relation to, I suppose, the world that we live in on a day-to-day basis. And I suppose to, yeah, make sure that you're not sort of seeing it all through one lens, Mm. being circumplex, whilst we obviously are very passionate about the value of our lens. You know, it's nice sometimes to see other people presenting in this space in a way that you go, yeah, okay, well, maybe we are on the right track. Mm. So one of them that keeps jumping out for me is a book called The Multipliers from Liz Wiseman. And, in fact, I saw her at a conference years and years ago. She presented and she was super impressive. And she only had about a half an hour compared to a lot of the other speakers that had a, a bit more time. So she only had a short time to impact, but she did it really, really well. And I immediately went out and bought the book. And for a non-reader, again, I think some of the things to me have to be clear. One is it's written in a way that you can you don't have to make so much effort to understand it. Like it's mm. it's written in a way that just makes sense, and and she does that brilliantly. But also that there's something enriching in it that you're not just reading something for the sake of reading it. That it's actually something in there you just go, wow, actually that's pretty cool. Mm. So the multipliers did that for me, and it, yeah, what's it about? So Liz has written this book called The Multipliers, and she talks about the sort of three components really that I picked up out of it, one being the multipliers uh, are people slash leaders that grow others. You know, they have a style about them that is supportive, encouraging, and actually helps others grow and be better versions of themselves through interacting with you. Mm-hmm. And I think if I then tried to overlay that, you know, I immediately went, oh, okay, well, that's, you know, that's our humanistic, encouraging, mm. self-actualizing leader, you know, support, comfortable in self to be able to support others and it doesn't have to be about them. Mm. The other aspect of what she wrote about was then the diminisher, so the leader or not so-called leader, doing things in a way that actually takes away the effectiveness of others, not necessarily always in intent, but for the purpose of what she wrote about, 
the diminisher was somebody who really was in control and taking control in a way that does deliberately diminish the effectiveness of others. And again, if I look at that sort of descriptor in our own world, it's probably the defensive, you know, maybe more aggressive defensive manager style who is wanting to, needing to, has to sort of be in control and in its worst case, I suppose, controlling of others. And so this diminisher concept was, you know, resonated for me, again, outside of our own filter, but I, I can overlay it really nicely, about a style of management that is not effective. You know, it might make you feel immediately in control, but ultimately reduces your effectiveness because you've got to constantly be in control. So this diminisher was a really great concept that she wrote about as well. The third area, though, which is what really grabbed me, and I'll be fascinated to talk to you about, okay. it, is this third area called the accidental diminisher. And what she was referring to there, the best that I took out of it, anyway, others might read it differently, but the, the way that I read it and understood it and certainly listened to her on a day at, at the conference speak was you're actually intending to be positive and be you know, what she would call the multiplier. But accidentally, what happens is you diminish the effectiveness of others. And, and so the, the sort of example that I, I play out for that is somebody comes to you, you know, Dom, you come to me and say, Ash, what do you think we should do in this example? And I would just very positively respond to that because we've got a good relationship. You've come and asked for my thoughts. So I give you my thoughts and you go, thanks, Ash. You'll walk away. Feels good. It's, yeah, it sounds it good. good. Yep. We helped each other out. It was a positive interaction. But the downside of that is that the risk is that you know if you keep doing that, you're always going to be getting my thoughts, not your own. And secondly, if it doesn't work, you may not be something you own because it was right. my idea. Ash, Ash told me to do it. <laughs> That's right. And you can imagine that eventually over time diminishing the effectiveness of that relationship and so forth and so on. And so what she talks a, a lot about is, and again, if you think about it in our world, this concept of what I call humanistic encouraging, which is the ability to ask questions before making statements. And so it's this concept of somebody says, Dom, Dom comes to Ash and says, hey, Ash, what do you think I should do here? Instead of me responding to that, I say, well, what, what's your objective, Dom? What are you trying to achieve? You know, what have you considered? What would you like to do? How would you like to do it? You know, who else have you spoken to? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we get to a point that hopefully I've never had to make a statement about anything that I feel, it's just a conversation we've had that you actually ultimately have come up with in the solution yourself. And I think that's an example of then multiplier. So ultimately what's happened is you've, you know, you, you've come up with a solution, you've developed your own thinking. I've simply just helped you do that. And I think you go away better off as a result of that than my single-minded, you know, knowledge of what the answer is and give it to you and away you go. Whilst the interaction felt good and you yeah. came to me for help. Yeah. That's why she called it, I think, the accidental diminisher. It wasn't so much that I intended to reduce your capability by just giving you the answer, but that's what possibly is the risk of it. It's interesting, right? Because my intent is to help you. Hey, I'm going to, mm. you've asked for an answer. I'm going to give you an answer. And I think it's a pretty good answer and it probably will yeah. Yeah, help yeah. at one level. Totally. Yeah. But it's a bit perhaps shorter term because it's like, I'm going to solve this one problem for you. But as you say, the multiplier from what I hear you saying, you know, there's an item in humanistic encouraging, which is my favorite item in that style, which is makes others think for themselves. Correct. And the LSI, I love that question because it's, it's what you're saying, right? So I could give you the answer. Teach a man to fish or, or give him the fish. Yeah. So the book was fantastic in helping me look at the constructive styles that we work in from a different lens. 
Mm. And I thought it was super powerful in sort of, you know, reinforcing that the classic multiplier is our rounded constructive thinker and leader versus sort of the diminishers are very clear for me. And again, I don't want to be too simplistic, but it's very much that strong, aggressive, defensive manager, you know, that needs to be in control. And therefore, when, you know, you come to me for a, for a question, there's no question in my mind that I'm going to answer it. I'm going to tell you what to do. And in fact, more often than not, I'm not going to wait for you to come and ask. I'll just come and tell you what mm. needs to happen, mm. how, it's, how it needs to happen and, you know, be fully much in control. So there's no question in my mind around those two. I think they become very clear. It's yeah. that accidental diminisher that so many of us, me included, you do things with the right intent. Sorry, not everything. Obviously, we're not perfect. But we do things with the right intent. But to be able to sort of start to help reflect on it by through that accidental diminisher lens and conversation to go, it wasn't that you did something wrong, but could you have done it differently? Could you have done it a different way that might have helped both you and Dom be more rich by the fact that you had a conversation about the alternatives, the outcome, the focus, what else, who else could be involved in this conversation so that ultimately we've got a true multiplier, not something that is diminished by being narrow in question answer. Mm. Yeah, and, and you know, speaking of books, it actually reminds me of another book. This is where, as you say, when you know the path broadly, you see it in all things, was um, The Advice Trap by Michael Bungay-Stanya, right. who was actually on the podcast some time ago. And it was this kind of, you know, the advice monsters of like, save it. You know, I, I want to <laughs> save them. So I want to help them, right? I want to protect them and save them. But the effect is I'm kind of solving their problems for them and not actually helping them to, to solve them for themselves, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, it's like I'm a parent with young kids and on one level it's like you want to save them, you know? You want to make sure everything's okay for them and, and get them everything they need and, and give them. But we also need to challenge them and let them struggle and fail and, you know, get over well, that. that and- totally, Dom. And it's that classic example of what does humanistic encouraging mean versus, you know, don't we sometimes have to just tell people to not do it. I use the kids' example as a classic. And again, sort of back to the book that I was referring to, this accidental diminisher versus diminisher. If you say to a kid, stop, don't touch that heater, and then you walk away, what do you think the kid's likely to do once they've thought that, you, you know, that they believe you're not coming back into the room? What's so special about this magical heater that I'm not allowed to touch? <laughs> I think I'll go and try to touch it and see what happens. And the reality is that that's a classic sort of, Diminisher, you didn't really help them understand it. You just stopped them until eventually they decided, no, I'm going to give it a go. And so this concept for me became clearer to the, what does this humanistic encouraging mean? Which is, stop, don't touch. Did you understand why I stopped you t- from touching that? No, I don't. Well, let's go over a bit closer. Can you feel how hot that's getting? Yes. If you touch that, it's going to burn your hand. Do you want to burn your hand? No, I don't really. So do you understand why daddy stopped you from doing that? Yes, I do. Would you touch the heater if I'm not in the room? No, I won't. Mm. Good. Well done. Mm. Exactly. So now we've now we've grown together as the process, and I could hopefully walk out feeling like it's fairly safe. They're not going to touch the heater. So it was a, those sorts of examples are spot on. Where I mm. feel like it helps me rationalise this theory to well, what does a practical example look like? And so for I really resonated with this particular book based on not the first two parts, but this accidental diminisher. I went, yeah, that's so many of us. We. We intend mm. to, to do the mm. right thing, but if it doesn't work, how can we get this lower score on a survey that we do when I'm so – I think I was doing the right thing? may not be intent at all. It's just possibly this slight shift in the way in which you're delivering around it. And I, I, I've used this 
statement a lot of times, which is, you know, if, if you can turn statements into, which I've, here we go, I've made statement lots of times. If you turn statement into question, you'll go mm. from being any mm. likelihood to be seen as power into humanistic encouraging. As long as you're genuine, of course, you're not using questions as a sneaky way around not saying something. It's a statement dressed up as a question, yeah, <laughs> which people often do, right? They're like, yeah. you know, Ash, do you think we should go left? And you're like, well, okay, that's obviously your view that we should go left. You know, like people dress a statement up with a question. Yes. I used to have a colleague that quite often did that. It would get to a point where I used to say, now, is this a question question or just one that you want? You already know the answer to it. say, oh, no, this is a question question. I go, great. Alternatively, you'd say, well, if you know what the answer is, tell us and then we can debate the answer. <laughs> so, so, yes, and, and, you, know, you, you want to be genuine in your questions. Look, people do that sometimes with like, Dominic, how do I get people to learn, land on the answer? You know, like how do I kind of manipulate really is what they're saying them into Correct. the answer, my answer. And it's like, what about we, an answer? Yes, right. You know? yeah. Which is not truly authentic, humanistic, encouraging, is it? It's, no. You know, we want to be open-minded that the questions could actually give us a response that we go, holy cow, I didn't think of that. And again, I use that example where if I go into a process assuming that I know the answer, and try to manipulate people around to it. Well, I have to be pretty confident my answer's right. Where if I'm genuinely interested in the questions being genuine questions, I could find out that there's a response that is a better option than the one I was going to put forward. So one mm. is now I don't look silly, but secondly, we've got a better outcome mm. and one that the third person or the second person buys into. So as a leader, I'm in a win-win-win situation. Right. How often uh, do you have to apologize for being wrong? Never, because I can't, never come in saying I'm absolutely right. Correct. <laughs> you know? Yeah. What about, I'm just thinking, Ash, because we've touched on examples of the accidental diminisher who's maybe providing the answers and perhaps sitting on that aggressive defensive side circumplex-wise. But I was just kind of thinking to myself, can there be the accidental diminisher perhaps on the passive side who's like, totally. I want to give people freedom and autonomy, so I'm kind of not going to provide direction or I'm going to leave it all up to you. But in some ways, that can also diminish. What do you reckon? Yeah, totally. Interesting, I I think that's what Liz refers to in her book, that it, it can come from, and not in her language, our language, both the aggressive defensive and passive defensive sides. I funnily enough how I read it must have had my lens must have been on in a way that was picking up mostly more control side. But you're spot on. Uh, there's no question that the accidental diminish it can come from an approval side of your intent and therefore I don't want to take over in any way and therefore exactly as you said you know could always just ask questions and never really guide or support them to get a direction and then ultimately there's no decision made so there's a diminishing aspect to that isn't there it's too ambiguous you know we don't know where we're going or it's the like hey i've got an idea you've got an idea we've got an idea and it's yes to all those ideas and now we've got (laughs) you know a hundred priorities we're trying to pursue and and therefore we don't do any of them, you know, and that's um, can be diminishing as well. So the interesting thing, I do recommend this book to people that coach, particularly where I feel not so much that they're high in any defensive style. I tend to, and again, right or wrong, I tend to focus on how do we just grow our constructive alternative without being too focused on, you know, we need to stop a certain style. Um, I don't subscribe to that so much i subscribe to more of the what would the alternative look like and how do we grow that mm. 
and be the positive psychology approach to things. And so I tend to talk to people around their humanistic encouraging to some degree affiliative and particularly the self-actualizing if it wasn't quite as strong as they were looking for, mm. either in LSL 1 or 2. And so I do recommend the book on the basis of, yeah, how, how might I be accidentally diminishing my effectiveness or thinking through overplaying a particular style? So it probably comes back to your point around, yeah, could it be passive? There's no doubt that sometimes when somebody's overplaying a little bit of their, you know, approval or passive styles is to get them to sort of think about, well, what's your intent? What's your outcome that you're trying to mm. achieve? Well, I want to, I want to get them to buy into it. I don't want to be telling them what to do. Awesome. So what would a multiplier approach, what would a constructive approach look like if the alternative was played out a bit stronger for you, either in your thinking or behavior? So I think it's been a really great read to help. Give somebody a sense of it's you know, it's not always got to be our language or in, in our frame that gets people to buy into it whilst obviously we're, we're super confident and comfortable with it. Sometimes it's just giving people another context to the same concept is an enriching approach. What I like about it as well, Ash, with the accidental diminisher thing is it perhaps gives people the opportunity to lower the defences a bit. You know, Because if you come at someone too direct of like, you're a diminisher, Ash, boom, the wall comes up and it's like, you know, explain, deflect, protect, you know, like kind of comes out with accidental diminishers. Say, hey, the intent's all good. It's just might not be the best way of going about it. I think that just means people can actually listen to the feedback and consider the alternative more rather than needing to defend themselves. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's, again, I think it's just a nice alternative way to present what ultimately for us is is the difference between the three styles, Mm. the three clusters. So, Mm. yeah. I think that's why I've resonated to that one as strongly as I have. Mm. Any other books? Yeah, look, I think another bit of a go-to one for me is a book from Nancy Klein called Time to Think, and I think she's done a couple of iterations. I must confess I haven't read the second one, but her first Time to Think was brilliant for me, and it probably does – it probably resonates for me as somebody who particularly likes to be heard – I'm a big fan of listening with a true intent of understanding first before seeking to have an opinion. I think it might have been my country boy upbringing, told by my mum to speak when you're spoken to and Mm. don't interrupt and and those sorts of things has led me to a strong belief of, you know, listening and and listening with intent. Mm. And the time to think really connected for me and Nancy has – again, articulated something better than I could possibly ever dream to do, but in a way that also is easy for a non-reader to to read and pick up. And it's a really clever book basically about learning to listen and using the power of listening in a way that, again, even I didn't fully appreciate. And I've done some programs and run some leadership development programs myself now with clients, as, as you're aware, Dom, around constructive conversations and constructive listening and those sorts of things and thought that I'd sort of had a pretty good coverage of it. But after reading Time to Think, it was another level for me. It was very, very clever. Mm. Yeah, what's like the key, what is it about how she covers it that really jumped out at you, took it to another level? Yeah, she talks about 10 steps and I immediately, when someone says that to me, I immediately (laughs) switch off because I'm thinking there's more than three. It's, it's too, too complicated. complicated. Yep. <laughs> I remember sitting in a program one day and the first opening line was, I'm going to help you uh, implement 12 easy steps. And I just went, well, there's an oxymoron, 12 easy steps. 
<laughs> so, yes, yeah, so initially I went, oh, God, 10, that sort of turned me off a little bit. But anyway, I stuck with it. But she talks about initially this, well, again, the concept of the whole book could be simply summarised in my read as being how to learn to actively listen. And this term that we overuse, mm. but I don't know whether everyone fully appreciates what that actually means. So it turns mm. it into practical. So she talks about the uh, sort of intent to listen without interpretation. So as humans, mm. what we tend to do is as we're hearing, we're tending to think about it. How am I going to respond? Do I agree with this? Judgment of what we're hearing. And so the first part of what she talks about is, is actually just listen, just purely hear what's been said and don't interpret it. Just simply hear the facts. And you uh-huh. talk about, I know you do a great exercise around the problem-solving model, and that's a critical part of that problem-solving model mm-hmm. is just listen to the facts, understand the facts, don't try to interpret them, don't try to you mm-hmm. know respond to them. So that's a pretty cool opening component which resonated for me a lot. I talk a lot about, and a program a few of my older colleagues and I have done, and it talks about listening with intent of assuming value. And what it stops you doing is trying to interpret and, and judge it, just listen with assuming value that whatever you hear, whilst it might not align to what you're thinking, just accept it for the moment. You don't have to do anything with it. You don't have to agree with it, but just accept it as being their view of what they're telling you. And so mm-hmm. that was a cool start from Nancy around the listening without interpretation. Mm. But also that everybody's opinion at the time you're listening is equal. So I think that's probably her way of what I just said then around not assuming value, so positively assuming value, that everyone's opinion at that point in the conversation is valuable. It's equal. You don't know enough about it. You haven't possibly, you know, heard it in a fully self-actualizing way yet. And so therefore, if we stop our intent to interpret and therefore everyone's opinion is equal at this point, you're actively listening. You're staying in the conversation in a way that she talks about being intentional in hearing not yet talking or thinking Mm. you know what that reminds me of you know talking group uh, dynamics again is oppositional so often you know a sign of an oppositional group is we we accept or reject ideas kind of at face value so as they're suggested no way ash that's never going to work or it can actually be yes that that's definitely the solution without really exploring it and understanding it yeah too true good example that she talks about as a listener, show that you are relaxed and at ease with the conversation and don't demonstrate any urgency. And so what that looks like is that you're eyeballing the person, you're sitting forward, you're mirroring some of their behavior versus you're fidgeting. You can see that your eyes are looking up to start responding. You're writing something down. There's this sense of, I am completely in your presence. I am relaxed. I'm at ease. I am at, you know, mm. at, at your conversation. And there's no sense of your busyness doing something else, mm. uh, including ready to reply. Mm. So I thought that was interesting. And I, I see that. And I know I've got this terrible bias towards inactive listening. So I've got to be very conscious of my own filter of being picking up on this one. But I see regularly this sense of urgency on the other side of a conversation that you go, I'm not being heard, little and understood, because the person's just showing too much energy on the other side that doesn't represent listening. And I know we've all got different styles and people can do two things at once, just because I can't. And people may be able to still actively listen, 
But I think what she's referring to is if you want to create power through listening, then this ease versus urgency is a critical one. I resonated with it. Yeah, and as you're talking then, I think as adults, we know not every decision can go our way. It's just not possible. Yeah, yeah. But it's when if we feel like we weren't really heard or our point wasn't really considered, that's when we struggle to get on board with whatever the decision is. Whereas if it's like, okay, it feels like Ash really heard me out and really understood where I was coming from and, and then the decision still didn't go my way. And I might not be overjoyed, but I think people can live with that. Totally. Versus like, he did, I didn't really get a fair hearing and he didn't really yeah. understand the point I was making. You know, now I'm, yeah. I'm going to really struggle. Yeah. Uh, literally this Monday, I think it was, I was asked by a client to go and interview six teams of people who had a low score in significance in the culture survey, significance, how, how do they feel that the job that they're doing, you know, adds value to others and do they feel like that, they're, that what they do matters to the organisation is very low. Mm. And I had six groups and I must have had a full whiteboard from each six group of all the challenges that they were facing. Mm-hmm. And I said to each group, as it was playing out for me, it appeared to be so consistent. If you were fully understood, fully heard, and the intention of your points were fully appreciated mm. but not accepted and you still didn't get your answer, how would you feel compared to where you are today? And they said, 10 times better. So my recommendation to the organisation was you need to learn how to actively listen through your leadership or lead through your, your listening. And they said, well, it's got to be more than that. And I said, well, I can tell you now that the 60-odd people that were in those six groups would say to you that they would be significantly more connected as leaders if they felt you heard and understood their views, even if they weren't accepted. So I think we can really underplay and underestimate genuine understanding through effective listening. We're so quick to want to fill in the gaps and answer it or debate it. Or... Mm. So, yeah, so... It, it, it... Sorry, Sorry, Ash, just a just a build on that is sometimes what I recommend to people is like feed it back. You know? So what, yeah. what I hear you saying is Correct. and even if you reflect the feeling as well. So, you know, hey, you're upset. What I hear is, you know, you weren't consulted, blah, blah, blah. Whatever it is. Rather than sometimes people go, Ash, I hear where you're coming from, but and it's like, well, do you actually know where I'm coming from? Because I don't know if you actually do. But if I can hear you say it back to me, Dom, it sounds like you're frustrated because, and it's like, yeah, that's right. Now I know that I've genuinely been heard. Yeah. Well, you must have read the book, Dom, because <laughs> one, of, one of her next points was feelings are okay. There you go. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, she talks about that. Don't try to reduce yours or the other person's feelings in a conversation because feelings suggest that you've actually really understood what's being communicated here and therefore they, if they've invoked a feeling, mm. go with it. Be prepared to have that feeling as part of the conversation. That was a massive learning for me several years ago as a very task-orientated, naturally mm. strong person. Very successfully done a lot of things in my HR career that has involved a lot of deep feeling, making someone redundant and having to understand the impact that's having on them. That take, you know, if you're not doing that with some feelings, then you know, mm. well, you shouldn't be doing this type of work. But I have to think about it. That's not something that I just naturally immediately connect with. But after... Mm. A colleague of mine getting crucified regularly at a leadership environment because previous to HS, of course, is uh, for having too many feelings. You know, don't worry about the feelings. Is it the right decision? And then reading this book and the way in which uh, Nancy puts it, I went, you know what? We are seriously undervaluing and underestimating the impact of feelings in decisions, not just that it's the right decision, but 
how does it feel? Is it gonna, how's it going to impact people? You know, how's it making us feel? I started to really, really connect with and, and I can, I was about to say, I can feel myself <laughs> being far more of a feeling decision maker nowadays than I ever have been, knowing that my strengths, my bias is still towards that task decision. So it was, again, nice to sort of see a very clever way of putting it around feelings are really important if you want to be seen as an active listener and therefore contributing to a more effective outcome. And I really resonate with that much more now than I ever have. Yeah, and it goes back to, you know, I think of group dynamics again, effective solutions equals quality times acceptance. And you can have the 10 out of 10 quality all day long, but it's only as effective as it is executed. You know, and so yeah. if people are sitting there with like, ooh, stuff going yeah. on for them. It's like they're not going to execute. So we've got to understand yeah. that. Well, and I've seen myself now a couple of fairly detailed research items around if you, the successful organisations, both from board level and exec level that have got a balance of feeling and thinking decision-making is where the more effective, mm. you know, even financial implications come from. So I think it's a, it's a great one to continue to harness that. And I think we've seen a slight bias during COVID where the humanistic encouraging and affiliative scores went up slightly and the, the achievements come down, Tad. And that's because I think we realised in tough times that sometimes actually it's really important to lean in. How do you do both now? How do you continue to grow that connection between others and the results and have that in a perfect balance? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that was good segue. You've obviously said you must have read it. The feelings are okay, she puts it. So that was another point of the, the book that I felt was really powerful. Yeah, cool. What else? The other, we talked a bit about accidental diminisher multiplier. She has a very similar concept also in her book called Encourages Others to Think and Act for Themselves. So mm-hmm. she talks a lot about the active listening allows you to be very present in what their needs are and what their concerns or gaps might be in their own thinking. And instead of filling them in, she talks about the ability to ask questions in a way that we would say typifies high self-actualizing, humanistic, encouraging, and affiliative styles. It's the ability to stay calm, collected, clear, concise in a question that allows others to feel safe for them to explore, even if they don't currently feel they know, but the ability to explore for themselves so that when ultimately they, there's a decision or a, an outcome, they own it and will act on it. Mm. And again, I thought it was a really lovely way of putting in our language humanistic encouraging, but in a humanistic encouraging, uh, sorry, in a self-actualizing way and an affiliative way. She sort of encompasses those three things. Well, I suppose one would argue so. It's driving uh, achievement and achievement, and achievement. The person. Yeah, exactly. So the, exactly because it's the act. Yeah, because it's to take yeah. to think and yeah, act for themselves. Yeah. There you go. So continue to explore what this means even after reading it. So that's that was one of the other aspects. Uh, she talks about absorbing the facts. I think that related to the bit that I talked about early on, mm-hmm. you know, listening actively, listening without interpretation is about just absorbing and understanding the facts. She talks a lot about, and again, I don't think we explore this anywhere near enough. You know, you, you would heard many times, Dom, with your clients around diversity. You know, how do we grow diversity? How do we manage diversity? And she talks a lot about this concept of how do you accept diversity if you haven't understood it? And how do you understand something if you haven't listened to it? And so she talks about difference is a positive, accepting diversity is a must. And I think it was a really powerful lesson for me reading it around. I was quick 
to overlay my current thinking to things. Now, I, I would like to think that I'm very good at then going, oh, but I wonder how it might be different if. But I sort of went to that first place of overlaying my own filter mm. slash judgment. Now, that's a tougher place to come back from than starting with a clean, open mind that difference is a positive thing, that diversity of thought, background, idea, you know, mm. approach, language in itself is a place to stay in for as long as you can before actually then starting to overlay your own filter. Because if you can do that, then the ability to adapt was easier. It doesn't mean we don't and shouldn't have our own thoughts about things. Of course we do. And that it's not going to come forward somewhere in the thinking and the conversation. But Mm. to be able to stay in the moment where difference is exciting, you know, diversity is fun before overlaying then your own, oh, what about this though because – and so that was a really cool concept as well around holding, you know, back to your S plus T equals R. How do we grow our T? For me, growing the thinking is to be able to stay in the place of uncomfortableness for as long as you can. And that gives you more chance of hopefully hearing and understanding the alternative before locking yourself into your current existing mind frame. Yeah. And sometimes I, I talk to groups who they're making a decision or solving a problem and it's like, do we want harmony? It's a bit of a trick question, right? Because yeah. it feels like you should say yes, but you know, <laughs> obviously we we obviously don't want out and out conflict. That's not useful, but we want kind of constructive differing. Yeah. We want to hear the different views. And I think one of the traps that I'll point out to teams is when they do very quickly align on a solution, particularly if it's like a, you know, there's a kind of strategy choice point and we very quickly aligned up, yep, we should go left, not right. But like, and we all agree, so cool, we all agree we're all on the same page, let's go, we've got an answer. But particularly when it's like at the strategic level type decision, it's like, have we fully considered the other side? And so it's almost just as a discipline as a team, like have we, we all agree really quick, but is there anything we're missing? And just, so it's inviting some of that diversity or difference into the conversation. Yeah. And I think just reflecting on it even then, where this fits in so deeply into the whole concept that Nancy's written about and and I suppose what we constantly try to work with in growing in the constructive styles is that we are so quick to, because it's part of our neural pathways, to pick up on what we know. Mm. It's the ability to truly hear Mm. the alternative, Mm. understand the alternative, reflect on that alternative Mm. before overlaying our own current filter. Mm -hmm. And I think the power and the richness of being able to do that would grow our diversity of thinking. Again, I've talked to a lot of people in coaching is that it's not for anyone else to tell you to change your thinking. But if you've had a diversity of thinking, before locking whatever decision you make in, well, at least you can say, well, I've, but I've done that right. in I the most enriching it. way versus, mm-hmm. no, I just, I've just stayed with what I already knew. Mm-hmm. Questions. So she talks a lot about asking questions uh, versus making statements. So I talked a little bit about that in the previous readings that I recommended. I think that's a really powerful trait of any leader. In a previous podcast we did, Dom, talking a bit about my background one of the leaders, uh, Rod Eddington, that I worked with was a brilliant leader in asking questions. He got you to places you never believed you could go to mm. purely by asking questions. And wow. the ownership and the belief you had in something when you spoke to him was incredible. I remember running into him in an airport 15 years later and he, and he didn't know who I was except he looked at me and he went, I know you, don't I? 
And he asked a couple of questions and before the, I could answer it, he said, Ash. And I went, how did you do that? Like his ability to ask questions in an intentive way that meant something versus just asking questions for the sake of questions was an incredible skill. Hmm. And so I think, uh, again, part of this whole active listening, being attentive as a leader about how others fit into the process, questions done well as probably the still the leadership trade I'm still trying to master. But if, if I, before I die, I would like to know that I've, I've learned how to ask questions in a way that grows other people mm. far greater than any strong statement I may have. Mm. Yeah. She, two final points. That, and again, as you can imagine, as I said, when I first read 10, I think, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. <laughs> but I, I couldn't stop reading each one of them. I just like each one of them made sense on their own right. and I was able to connect. And so the last two she talks about is creating the place to listen. So that's not just physical, like the room. But it is a little bit about that. It's about making sure that if you're wanting to have a legitimately powerful conversation, then create the right space for that conversation. So in the middle of a cafe, really, with colleagues walking past, probably not. Mm. It's not going to endear itself to a truly intentful conversation. Mm. But it might be that you decide that we're going to go for a walk around the block where it's just us. Yep. Uh, that might that might in that particular example create the place so, where so, it's about. And sometimes they say um, there's research that says if we're parallel side by side, like when we're walking or in the car or something, that people actually can open up more. Totally. Yeah, It's why they say like, yeah, long car rides or something, people often talk at a deeper level, yeah. which is interesting. You know? Yeah, I can tell you now that if my wife and I need to have a chat, the first thing we both do is go, let's go for a walk. And we know that there's nothing we can't resolve, talk about when we just get out and go for a walk. So maybe there's something mm-hmm. in that, Dom, that I wasn't aware of. Actually, thinking about that, my wife and I, when we, whenever we've had big decisions to make, we'd walk around like Centennial Park near there our house go. or something like that. So there you go. Research proved. <laughs> Application. <laughs> <laughs> and the final one is appreciation, showing it. So what she talks a lot about is that it's not just showing that you heard and listened and they, they pick it up, but she talks about, and I've never really... I never really picked this up until I'd read it and I'm probably still not doing it as well as I could now that I've just reflected on this conversation. But she talks about saying, Dom, I really appreciate that we've had this conversation. I really appreciate that you had the courage to come and talk to me. I really appreciate that you were prepared to share so openly to me about this situation that you confronted with and actually show true appreciation the fact that we've had the conversation. And so she talks about how it completely rounds off sending the message that you legitimately were listening and legitimately appreciated the conversation. Mm. Now, again, at no stage does she talk about that you have to have bought into any of the conversation, that you had to agree with it, that you had to implement anything that's been discussed. Mm. But the power in truly deeply listening, she believes, and I also believe, grows your leadership capability beyond the not doing it. And I, mm. I start to move through each of those 10 uh, concepts and go, I find it really hard to question how any of those would diminish versus add significant value to your leadership capability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and resonating with all of them. But, you know, I can definitely see not always uh, living up to all of them in myself totally. either, yeah. Ash, you know. And so yeah. maybe that one just got added to my uh, playlist podcast of, list, uh, yeah. podcasts of uh, books. Yeah. It's definitely worth the listen to. As I say, I'd probably go and do the same myself again. I've read it a couple of times over 20 years, Mm. but it'd be an interesting one to listen to because, again, I think my learning style is such that another level of interest would 
filter into the brain, I think. So I might and, join you. And you know what it is sometimes when, you know, like when you watch a movie again or you read a book again, you take out things that you missed the first time because now you're kind of primed for it, I suppose. So, yeah, no, so that was, uh, that's one of the other go-tos that I, um, I really love. So, yeah, as I said, a non-reader, I can highly recommend. They're both really easy reads, The Multiplier and Time to Think, two very good books. Love it. Thank you very much for sharing those, Ash. I'm going to check them out and they might uh, get added to my recommended reading list as well. Happy listening, happy reading. All right. Thanks, mate. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Bites. If you enjoy the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, leave us a review. It helps other people to find the show. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, email podcast at human-synergistics.com.au. We'd love to answer it. This podcast is copyrighted by Human Synergistics Australia. All rights reserved. To learn more about what we do, visit human-synergistics.com.au.